Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 11. May we hear the word of the Lord. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe, of which no man gave attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident, for that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. For he testifieth, thou art a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before, for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. And inasmuch as not without an oath, he was made priest. For those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man... Because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily, as those high priests, to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins, and then for the people's. For this he did once, when he offered up himself. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmities. But the word of the oath, which was since the law, maketh the Son, who is consecrated forevermore. You'll notice that this passage is a continuation of some of the thoughts that we developed last week concerning the mysterious character named Melchizedek. And we're in the very heart and soul of the book of Hebrews. This passage, technical as it is, talks about the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And that's a glorious theme, isn't it? Jesus is our priest. He's not our therapist, but he is our representative before God. And the fact is, you and I, regular people, have the same privilege today that only one person had under the Old Covenant. The high priest could go into the Holy of Holies and meet with God face to face. And now that privilege that was reserved for only one person is now open to each one of us today. You can draw near, as verse 19 says, by the which we draw nigh unto God. And by the way, 
This expression, drawing nigh or drawing near to God, is one of the themes of the book of Hebrews. You see it in chapter 4, verse 16, when he said, let us come boldly unto a throne of grace. You can draw nigh. You see it in chapter 10, verse 22, where he says, let us draw near with a true heart. You know, somebody says, um, I want to keep my distance from something that might be dangerous. I want to quarantine from a disease, or I want to stay far enough back from a fire so as not to jeopardize my health. We, we like to keep our distance from that which is perceived to be a threat to us. May I say the greatest threat to sinners is the holiness of God. He's also our Heavenly Father. And you say, He's a Father, I want to draw near to Him, but I am afraid of His holiness. I'm telling you, you don't have to be afraid that God will judge you because you have a priest by whom we draw near unto God. Under the Old Testament, the children of Israel couldn't get close to God. You know, the normal people stood afar off. They were not allowed to come into the holy place, especially into the holy of holies. They stood in the outer court at a distance. But my beloved, you can come close to God today. In the book of Exodus, we learn about the children of Israel at Mount Sinai, which trembled and quaked and was all together in a smoke like a volcano. And the children of Israel could not come close to that mountain. In fact, they were afraid of it. But chapter 12 of Hebrews tells us in verse 18 that we can come nigh to Mount Zion, not to Mount Sinai, through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this theme of drawing near is one of the dominant emphases of the book of Hebrews. Somebody says, Brother Mike, I just wish I could get close to God and learn more about Him. Well, you can through the merits of Jesus Christ. Now, last time we talked about the fact that the credentials of the Lord Jesus Christ to be a priest do not derive from the law, but from a priestly order that predates the law. Jesus is made a priest after the order of a man who lived prior to Moses, a man by the name of Melchizedek. And as we see in the 15th verse, Melchizedek is a striking type of Jesus Christ. It is far more evident, he says, for after the similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest. There are various parallels between this Old Testament mysterious figure named Melchizedek and our priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, in his name. Melchizedek was called King of Righteousness and King of Salem, which means King of Peace. And may I say that that sequence, righteousness and peace, is consistent all the way through the Bible. Righteousness comes first, then follows peace. He's King of Righteousness, then after that, King of Peace. The fact is, you will never have peace with God, and I will never have peace with God or even in my own heart unless we first are recipients of the grace of God in His righteousness. You know, righteousness must come before peace. Grace comes before peace. Have you ever noticed in the benedictions of the epistles, the writer will often say, grace and peace be unto you. Grace, then peace. Righteousness, then peace. Somebody says, I just wish that God would be at peace with me. Well, he won't unless the law is upheld and righteousness 
is established. The problem you face and that I face, my friends, is that we have no righteousness of our own. How wonderful the gospel message is then to know that we have a priest who is our righteousness. He's the king of righteousness. He is just. Jesus is called in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, Jesus Christ, the righteous. 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ hath also once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. He's the just one. Jesus is righteous in and of himself. And the good news of the gospel is that his righteousness has been credited to you. What he did, you get the benefits of it. Isn't that what 2 Corinthians 5.21 means when it says, For God hath made Christ to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That verse describes the wonderful exchange in which Jesus was treated as if he had lived your life so that you and I might be treated as if we had lived his perfect life of obedience. He was made sin for me so that I might be made the righteousness of God in him. When God looks at Mike Goins, he doesn't see me as a sinner. He doesn't see me as I see myself in the mirror. He sees me through the blood of Jesus Christ, and he says, he is everything that my law requires him to be. He measures up. He's righteous. And the goal of Christian living is to be in practice what we already are in position. I want to live according to who I am in the Lord Jesus Christ. So notice Melchizedek was king of righteousness and king of peace. Peace, my beloved, is the byproduct of a righteous status with God. And if you want peace in your heart, and who doesn't? Anybody here this morning say, I don't need peace? I'm sure every one of us have inward battles, inner turmoil, don't we? And we want peace in our hearts. Just to know all is well. To have peace is a priceless blessing in this world. My beloved, peace only comes through the imputation of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 32, 17 puts it like this. The work of righteousness shall be peace. And the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. Psalm 85, 10 says, mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Where is that true? Only at the cross. Not only is Melchizedek a striking type of Christ in terms of his name, but in his offices. For we learned in Genesis 14 and also the 110th Psalm that Melchizedek filled two offices at one time. He's both a king and a priest. That was something unheard of under the law. A couple of times that kings tried to function as a priest, like King Saul or King Uzziah, they were both judged severely for overstepping their bounds. But Melchizedek is not only king of Salem, but he is the priest of the Most High God. He's a king and a priest at the same time. And the Messiah, in prophecy, we're told, will be both a king and a priest at the same time. Listen, if you will, to Zechariah chapter 6, verse 13. The man whose name is The Branch, all capital letters, and by the way, that's a messianic title, talking about the coming Christ. It says, even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and he shall sit and rule upon his throne. That's a king. And he shall be a priest upon his throne. 
He's a king priest. Psalm 110 says that he is set at the Lord's right hand. He has been elevated to the right hand of God as the king of kings and lord of lords. It also says thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then furthermore, we may see some parallels between Melchizedek and Christ in the narrative that appears in Genesis 14 when Melchizedek met Abraham returning from the battle. My friends, when you have been in a battle, may I say it's easy to be weary and fatigued. And notice Melchizedek met Abraham returning from the battle. And our priest, may I say, meets us. You know, you say, I've come to church this morning to meet him. But what we really need is that he would meet us, right? He takes the initiative to meet us. By the way, that's what grace means. Grace is God taking the initiative. Somebody says, if you'll take the first step, then God will meet you halfway. I'm telling you, the gospel message is the very opposite of that. It tells us that God took the initiative. He didn't wait for us to take the first step. And praise God, that's the truth, because we never would have taken the first step to God by nature. We're dead in trespasses and sins, right? But grace tells us that He meets us. He came to where we were. He took the initiative. Abraham didn't come looking for Melchizedek. Melchizedek came out and met Abraham. May I say every sinner that's saved, it's not because that sinner met the Lord. It's because the Lord met that sinner. It's because the Lord came to where we were. And when he met him, notice, he met him with refreshments. He fed him a meal, bread and wine. One of the great parallels between Melchizedek and Christ is when he comes to meet us, my beloved, he's always interested in feeding us. One of the best things you can do for another person is to feed them. What a blessing, what a mercy it is, what a privilege it is to be provided for by somebody else. Somebody says, I'm going to make you a meal. What a gift that is. Every mother should be held on a pedestal Because she feeds her family day after day, year after year. And may I say our Lord has done a great thing for us in providing refreshment for us. Hasn't he fed you all your life long? It's what Jacob said, the Lord which fed me all my life long preserved the last. He has fed me, my beloved, from day one. No telling how many church services I've attended in my life. I cut my teeth on those old hard pews in the old Baptist church as a child. My dad is a primitive Baptist preacher. My granddad was a primitive Baptist minister. I have several uncles and cousins that are old Baptist ministers. And I have attended three-day meetings, weeks meetings, like many of you. And they haven't all been mountaintop experiences. You know, every time you come to church, you're not on the top of the mountain, but we're there to give something, not to get something. Our first priority is there. we're there to worship, right? We're there to say, thank you, Lord, for who you are and all that you've done for me. And whether we get anything or not, he deserves to be worshiped. We ought to be in the house of God come Lord's Day morning because the Lord deserves it first and foremost. But secondly, my friends, if you'll keep coming, you'll get something. And by the way, if you come in the right attitude, you'll probably receive a blessing every time that you come. 
The Lord says, if you will open the door, he will come in and sup with you. That verse in Revelation 3 indicates that if no one else gets a blessing, my friends, you might be the only one, but yet if you'll come with the right attitude, the Lord promises to commune with you and me in public worship in his house. But the fact is, my beloved, as I've come to the Old Baptist Church and heard the gospel preached and these wonderful hymns of the faith sung, and I've been in fellowship with the saints of Zion, may I say my soul has been filled up to the brim on more than one occasion. I've been strengthened. I've been fed. I've eaten a feast of fat things. I've tasted the good word of God. I've tasted that the Lord is gracious. Indeed, my friends, I've tasted of that heavenly gift, as Hebrews chapter 6 says, and the power of the world to come. Have you ever been fed with manna from on high? Psalm 78 says the Lord gave them angels food. He sent them meat to the full. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. My beloved, the best meal I've ever had has come from my great high priest. When I've come in weary and fatigued from the battles of life, my priest has met me with refreshments. And just a little bit of bread and wine, if you please, has been sufficient to strengthen me for the journey that was before me in my life. And then not only did Melchizedek meet Abraham, not only did he bring him refreshment, but he blessed him in the name of the Lord. Like a priest would bless the people. You know, Numbers 6, 24 through 26 is the priestly benediction that the priests would pronounce over the people as they would lift their hands and say, The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and give thee peace. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and be gracious unto thee. That Trinitarian benediction. And the people would depart from the temple worship after the priest pronounced benediction or blessing upon them. Now when we bless one another, we're not saying I have the ability to convey a blessing to you, but we're praying that God would bless you. The Lord bless thee. And keep thee. And that's what Melchizedek did to Abraham. When Abraham came back, Melchizedek said, Blessed be thou of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. He blessed him in the name of the Lord. My beloved, may I say, our priest not only feeds us and meets us, but he blesses us. And I pray you will receive such a blessing from him today. And then he received tithes of Abraham as an act of homage and esteem. And our great high priest, my beloved, receives worship from you and me. So Melchizedek is a wonderful and striking type or picture of our priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. He, Christ came after the similitude of Melchizedek. But I want you to notice in the time before us this morning that Melchizedek's priesthood was greater. Let's talk about the superior priesthood of Jesus Christ. Melchizedek was a priest greater than Aaron and the Levites. Chapter 7, verse number 4 says, Consider how great this man was. He's great. Even Abraham recognized the dignity of Melchizedek. And that's why the word better appears four times in this passage. You see it in verse 19, the bringing in of a better hope made us perfect. You see it in verse 22, Jesus was made a surety of a better testament. You see it in chapter 8, verse 6, 
where it says that he's the mediator of a better covenant, which is established upon better promises. Now, the law was good, but my friends, the gospel is better. Aaron was good. He was a priest of God, but Melchizedek was better, and Christ is better. He's superior. He's greater. In fact, listen to chapter 8, verse 6. Jesus has obtained a more excellent ministry. The language speaks of, again, superiority, transcendence. It's greater. It's better. It's more excellent. Why would anybody then be content to settle for the law when what we have now through Christ is so much better? That's the whole argument of the book of Hebrews. Let's talk about the different ways Melchizedek's priesthood was greater than the Levitical priesthood. And by way of parallel, Christ's priesthood is superior to Aaron's. First of all, in its antiquity, and this was the dominant thought we developed last week, that Melchizedek was a priest at least 400 years prior to Aaron, prior to the law. You see, there was a priesthood in place even before Aaron was inaugurated to represent the people of Israel before God. There was a priesthood that was antiquated or that predated Aaron's. That was our theme mainly last week. Secondly, in its scope, Melchizedek's priesthood was more expansive than Aaron's. Aaron's priesthood was limited to the nation of Israel, right? But Melchizedek's priesthood was more international. It was not just national, it was international. It had an extent or a reach that went beyond the Levitical priesthood. He was the priest of the Lord's people even before official religion was inaugurated. I think that's one reason that the name mentioned for God, the Hebrew name Most High God in Genesis 14 is so significant. I don't know how familiar you are with the different Hebrew names for God in the Bible. Jehovah or Yahweh is a very familiar name. It's the I Am that God revealed to Moses, the great I Am. That's Jehovah or Yahweh. And that's his covenant name, his redemptive name that speaks of a relationship that he enters into with his people. The name Jesus is a rendition of the name Jehovah. It means Jehovah saves. Jehovah is salvation. And we know that name. We also know the name Elohim or the creator God. In the beginning, God. That's the Hebrew name Elohim, which means the God who is the creator of all things. We also know the name Jehovah Jireh. You remember the story of Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah, and he named that place Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. I love that name. The name Jehovah Shimon, Ezekiel 48, 35, the Lord is there. The name Jehovah Nisai in Judges chapter 6, they raised a banner. The Lord is our banner. We fight under his flag. He's the captain of our salvation. The name Jehovah Sidkinu, the Lord our righteousness, in Jeremiah 23, 15. The name El Olam, the everlasting God. And then this name, El Elyon, the most high God. Now that doesn't mean there are other gods that are legitimate who are just not as high as him. It just means that above all, he's the sovereign. He's the highest. He's the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity whose name is holy and that's the name interestingly 
that Melchizedek mentions when he says, I am the priest of the Most High God. That is the God who is greater than all. I am his priest. And I want you to notice from the use of that name, which is a more international or generic name for God than Jehovah, which was specific to the Jews. Only the Jews knew God as Jehovah. God is the Redeemer. Yet God is still the creator of all men, right? Even though he's the redeemer of a covenant people, yet we know that he is almighty over all men. He's sovereign. He's been given authority, power over all flesh. Though he gives eternal life to as many as God has given him. Though his grace is particular, his sovereignty is universal. He's the most high God. Whether a person ever acknowledges God as sovereign or not, may I say, he's still God. He's still the judge. He's still the creator. He's still the one to whom every human being must give an account. God's authority and his power does not depend on man to acknowledge it for it to be true. He is the most high God. And here's the point that I make. Melchizedek knew the true God even though his knowledge was not as refined or complete as yours is this morning. He believed and worshipped the true God. His knowledge of God may not have been complete, but his faith in the true God was genuine and sincere. What I'm saying is, he was not a counterfeit priest. His knowledge was incomplete, but it wasn't counterfeit. Let me just say this. We believe that we understand the truth of His grace. Now, when we say that, you've heard Primitive Baptist preachers say, thank you, Lord, for showing us the truth. It often comes across to people as being a little bit arrogant, and we certainly don't intend to be arrogant because we know that whatever we know, it's not perfect yet, right? We have much to learn. Do you understand that? I have a long ways to go. And we also know, dear friends, that that doesn't mean that I alone am a child of God. We know he has people even outside these walls. If I didn't believe that truth was preached here, I wouldn't be an old Baptist. Okay, I I can tell you that much. You say, well, nobody else has any truth. I wouldn't go so far as to say that. But I do believe that I've found something that satisfies my soul and that rings true. That what I hear in the pulpit resonates with what God has put in my heart. And I say that that's true. Does that mean then that everybody else is a counterfeit? You know, somebody, if they claim to have truth, does that mean that everybody else is a counterfeit, that every other church is a false church? No, my friends, may I draw this point from Melchizedek's experience that just because somebody doesn't see things exactly like I see them doesn't mean that their faith is insincere or counterfeit. It may be incomplete. It may not be as developed or as refined as what I understand truth to entail. But yet, my friends, Melchizedek teaches us that God receives worship from true faith, even if it's not completely informed and developed like yours or mine may be. And ours still, again, has a long ways to go. What I'm saying is God has people out of every nation, kindred, and tongue who may or may not necessarily agree with me. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm ready to say, well, it doesn't matter how you worship God because he, had, he calls upon us to worship him in spirit and in truth. True worship is both informed by the word of God and it is legitimate and genuine from the heart. It's in spirit and in truth. But what I'm saying is that 
Melchizedek had a partial knowledge of God. He didn't know God as Jehovah yet. But he shows us that God has had people even before organized religion. 400 years before Moses and the law, God acknowledges Melchizedek's priesthood. The official priesthood of the day when Moses established the law was the Levitical priesthood, but it was not the only priesthood in history that God recognized. And here's a question I would pose to you this morning, my beloved. Was God worshipped? Now you think about this. Was God worshipped in faith prior to the establishment of organized religion with Moses? The answer is evidently he was. From the very beginning of time, for the book of Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that by faith, Abel, that, that was a long time before Moses. Who was Abel? He was Adam and Eve's son. A long time before the law was given, Abel offered a blood sacrifice to God, and he did it by faith. You say, where did he learn that God accepts blood sacrifices? Probably from the fact that God had clothed his parents, Adam and Eve, with coats of animal skin after they sinned in the Garden of Eden. And to be able to clothe someone with the skin of an animal involves what? The shedding of blood, death. You can't get an animal skin <laughs> to make a coat out of without a death taking place. Abel learned from that act, no doubt, that God requires a blood sacrifice to worship. Now Cain should have learned the same lesson. But Cain brought of the fruit of his own toil, the fruit of the ground. Abel offered a sacrifice by faith, Cain offered his own works, and God accepted Abel's sacrifice rather than Cain's sacrifice. But you see, God was worshipped in faith even prior to the establishment of organized religion with Moses. Abel was acknowledged by God as a man of faith. What about Enoch and Noah? Hebrews 11 again says, by faith, Enoch walked with God. By faith, Noah obeyed God and prepared an ark to the saving of his house when God destroyed the earth by water. You see, here are people walking by faith even before organized religion is set up. Here's a very important point. There are many Christians who say, you can't be saved except through organized religion. You have to have either Judaism or Christianity, that this is the means by which grace is communicated to sinners. I ask you, how do you explain then Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham walking by faith and Melchizedek who believed in the true God? His faith was not disingenuous. It was sincere. It was real. How do you explain that prior to organized religion? You see, old Baptists teach that God has people even outside of Christianity. God does not need the church, and he doesn't use organized religion as his means of saving sinners. Do you know why? Because Jesus Christ is the one means, the one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And God can find his children in the darkest jungles of Africa. He can find them behind the political barriers of communism or socialism. He will find every one of the objects of his eternal love and quicken them into divine life. Wherever they are in this world, God has a big family. You know, when Brother Obey in Tanzania first heard the gospel that Brother Sam Bryant preached, he said, you mean there's hope for my ancestors who never came to an understanding of the Christian faith? He says, if God loved them and if you see the evidence of grace in their life, 
the fruit of the Spirit in their hearts, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. If you see that, my friends, that's an evidence that God has touched them and quickened them and that they belong to Him, that Christ died for them. He said, then what's the use of the church? What's the use of the law or the church? It's to tell people the good news of His sovereign and amazing grace. And to call upon them to conform their lives now in praise to this God in a way that will praise and honor the God who has done so much for them. That's the purpose of the gospel. That's the purpose of the church. My beloved, the official priesthood, the Levites and Aaron sacrifices was not the first time that God ever accepted worship. And you say, well, Brother Goins, if that's true, then that means the church and the law, organized religion has no place. And you may know there are many people in the modern world who say, I have no use for organized religion. I can worship God as well out on the creek bank or in nature. In a nature sanctuary as I can in the house of God. And my friends, may I say the Lord has established Zion as a place where the truth is heard, where the gospel is proclaimed. You see, you can learn something in the church and in the gospel that you could never learn out here in nature. Special revelation in scripture is more complete than general revelation in nature. And that's why we need to hear the word of God preach. And that's why we need to fraternize with the saints and commune with God's people in the church. Because the Lord loveth the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Jacob's here in his dwelling, in his home, in his house. He says, I'm just going to go to church in my house. I'm going to be my own priest. I'm going to raise my children and teach them. No, my friends, you need to come together with the redeemed people of God in the church, in the local church, and hear the word read and preached and taught publicly. And you need the experience, my beloved, of worshiping God in the congregation of the saints. The psalmist said it like this in the 116th Psalm, I will pay my vows now to the Lord in the presence of all of his people. I'm talking about how Melchizedek's priesthood was superior to the Levitical priesthood, not only in its antiquity, but in its scope, in its reach, in its extent. It embraced more than the Levitical priesthood did. Only the Jews were represented by Levi. But all of God's children can be represented by the priest who is after the order of Melchizedek, the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? By the way, how do you explain Job? Job was contemporary with the patriarchs. We know that because the name for God that appears in the book of Job is the same name that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob used. Exodus 6.3 says that I was known by the patriarchs by the name God Almighty or the Almighty God. That's El Shaddai. And whenever you read the book of Job over and over and over again, Job calls God what? The Almighty. The Almighty God. El Shaddai uses the very same name. Job was not a Jew. You believe Job was a child of God? Well, he knew an awful lot, didn't he? Now, he didn't know as much as we know this morning. He didn't know about the covenant of redemption with God's electing grace and predestinating grace. He didn't know, my friends, about the substitutionary nature of the atonement, that Jesus took the place of sinners and died in their stead and they received the benefits of his death. He didn't know about the precise doctrines that we emphasize immediate regeneration and eternal security. But Job knew an awful lot, didn't he? 
He not only knew that God was almighty. What does that mean? It's self-explanatory. He has all might. His power, his greatness. He knew that he was the kinsman redeemer. He calls him my redeemer. I know that my redeemer, that word, Hebrew word goel, means a kinsman, somebody who's kin to us, who can also redeem us. He knew that the Messiah was a kinsman redeemer. He was also a man of prayer. He prayed to God continually for his children. It's one of the best things parents can do for their children. He prayed for his children every day. And he understood something of the cosmic struggle between good and evil. Yet in Job 9 verse 2, he says, I know it's so the truth, but how shall man be just with God? The whole idea of justification was a mystery to Job. But again, he had faith in the true God. His faith was not counterfeit. But it was incomplete. And the gospel has filled in the blanks for you and me this morning that so many of God's people in the past did not see clearly. But that doesn't mean their faith was any less genuine. How do you explain this morning the presence of faith during the 2,500 years between Adam and the establishment of organized religion with Moses, my beloved? The answer is by understanding that God reveals himself to some extent to each of his children in regeneration when they're born again. John 6.45 says they shall all be taught of God. A little baby that passes away in its earliest days or before it sees the light of day, maybe because of the horrific practice of abortion, that little baby, my friends, may I say, can be taught of God in the heart even though their mind is not yet developed to understand it. I believe that God can speak to the heart even though the mind of one is unable to process rational thought, you take someone that is afflicted with some mental handicap, you take a little infant before it sees the light of day or yet in its earliest days, my beloved God will find every one of his children and teach them in the heart. They shall all be taught of God from the least to the greatest. You say, well, that's enough for me. No, you need to have your brain educated to match up with the heart, right? That's what the gospel does. It informs the mind so that we can understand who it is that has taught us to love him. I'll tell you, God puts his love in the heart of every one of his children according to his sovereign will. And they're all taught of God. That means God is the origin, the source of that teaching. John 17, 3 says, This is life eternal, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. And in the very next chapter, Hebrews chapter 8, he's going to tell us that under the new covenant, we're not to teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. You don't need human teachers, for they shall all know me. He says, From the least to the greatest, For I will write my laws in their hearts and print them in their minds. And I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. Now what I'm preaching this morning is sovereign grace. God is a God, my friends, who reaches the heart. And the purpose of preaching and teaching is to inform the mind. And when you can get the head and the heart together, you're in good shape. You're in good shape. You know, I can't quicken my children I can't touch their hearts and make them children of God, but I can fill their minds with the Bible and the Word of God and truth. And if God is ever pleased to quicken their hearts and they can take an informed mind and an inflamed and alive heart and put those together, then they are set up for a life of productive Christian discipleship to the glory of God. 
Melchizedek was greater than Aaron and Levi in his antiquity in the scope of his priesthood. And therefore, because genuine faith was present prior to the law, we must never be surprised to find it after or even beyond the party line of official religion. And then he was greater than Aaron's priesthood in his origin and his longevity. And again, the clock has beaten me this morning and I haven't made it as far as I had wanted, but I'm not going to tax your patience any longer because this is such a technical passage. It is so challenging. Hebrews 7 is not an easy passage. And you've, uh, you really have a lot of courage to come back today after last Sunday. I'm just really proud of all of you. But uh, I'm not going to tax your patience by just trying to finish this morning. I do want you to know, though, this morning, my beloved, all of this means that the law was only a beginning. The law was only the beginning. And it foreshadowed something that was more perfect to come. Did you notice the word perfect in our reading, verse 11? For if perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, then there would have never been a need to change things. If your sins could have been atoned for under the law, if the priest's animal sacrifice, if the blood of that lamb or the turtle dove or the pigeon or the bullock or the heifer would have done the job in dealing with your sins, if that would have redeemed you, there never would have been a need for Christ to come. You couldn't be made perfect by the law. You say, Brother Mike, we know that. But you know, there are a lot of people who don't. They're still trying to keep the law in order to win the righteousness of God. You can't be made perfect by your works, my friend. Verse 19 says, for the law made nothing perfect. There's that word again. But the bringing in of a better, a better hope did. It did satisfy our needs. By the which we can draw nigh. You can come close to God through this better hope. What is that better hope? It is our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, to insist on perpetuating the law of Moses is not only a matter of embracing the shadow when the substance is right before you, but it's a presumptuous act of unbelief and faithlessness in our superior priest. John Calvin said it like this in his commentary, He who still holds to the shadow of the law or seeks to restore the precepts of the law not only obscures the glory of Christ, but also deprives us of the immense benefit by putting God at a greater distance from us. And whosoever continues in the law knowingly and willingly deprives himself of the privilege of drawing nigh to God. I've gotten pretty close, daringly close to God this morning here in the sanctuary of public worship. I've, I've talked to him. I've thought about him. I've sung to him. I've applied to him for help with my problems. I've tried to worship him. You say, Brother Mike, you're a sinful man. You sure are daring to come so close to God. I'm not afraid because I have a superior high priest. My better hope, my hope for the future, by the which I've drawn nigh to God and you have too today. Jesus.